Hey, Kingdom Roots friends. I want to invite you to a special event Northern Seminary is bringing back by popular demand. It's our Taste of Northern, and it's going to be happening May 20th through the 23rd. We're opening all our classes that week in May, and it doesn't matter if you're in the Netherlands or Japan, because check this out, we literally have students join us from both of those places. See, everyone can participate from anywhere in the Taste of Northern via Northern Live. You just need an internet connection. Now, we're so excited at the thought of having you join us for one of the classes between May 20th through 23rd that we will send you the first lecture Scott did on Paul's pastoral theology for free, as well as give you a $250 scholarship toward a degree program at Northern. That's a value of over $550 that you're getting absolutely free just for signing up and attending the Taste of Northern event. Just go to seminary.edu forward slash taste to sign up. We look forward to being with you and having you get a taste of our northern community. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have the audio from the first part of Scott's webinar that he did with Tara Beth Leach on women leading in the church. Thanks, Chaz, for getting this started and organized. And I'm especially thankful to Tara Beth that she's taken time from her busy schedule in sunny Southern California to invade. It's, it's gloomy here in Chicago, but uh, we're looking for some better weather down the road. Yeah. Uh, I had Tara Beth as a student. I met her probably six years ago, seven years ago, something like that, when she was, a, a, I think, a beginning seminary student, and I was a beginning seminary professor at Northern, though I had taught before. And there was something about her in her early papers, and I'm, I'm a person who assigns more papers rather than fewer papers and shorter papers rather than longer papers. And there was something about her papers immediately that struck me. There was a pastoral warmth uh, along with a capacity to understand what the New Testament, she was taking a course on Jesus and the Gospels. She understood what the text meant, but she knew the significance of the text. So it, it drew my attention. I started paying attention to her. And then Tara Beth became my graduate assistant, I think, for three years. Was it three years? And she did a lot of things that a lot of people would, that I didn't want to do. And she did them very well. And so far as I know, she didn't complain about it. So she may, Chaz may very well know her complaints now. Mm -hmm. But she did a great job with me. And so I was thrilled um, that she was offered a position in Pasadena as the lead pastor at Pasadena Nazarene, Paz Naz. And we're glad to have you with us today, Tara Beth. And I wonder if you'd just maybe introduce yourself just a little bit, and we'll get started. Yeah, sure. Uh, as Scott said, I am Tara Beth, and I have been in pastoral ministry for 12 years. And I have just completed my first year here at First Church of the Nazarene uh, in Pasadena, or affectionately called Paznaz. It is a marvelous, amazing, loving, warm congregation, and I am absolutely honored to be their pastor. And this first year has been an incredible journey. I've also been married for 11 years, 
and I have two wild boys, Caleb and Noah, and they are five and seven years old. Very good. Well, Tara Beth, uh, you're in ministry, um, and uh, you took a course with me on the history of, uh, I think, the, I don't know what the title was exactly, but we read a book on evangelical feminism and the history of women and their um, serving as ministers in, e in the evangelical movement in churches, which was a bit of a rocky road and uh, with some checkered history. Uh, but so many influencers and their names and the movements came up in that book. And I wonder if you could help us today, uh, for the sake of our audience, who were the major influencers in your own calling to be a pastor? Yeah, well, I think of uh, reading that book was the first time I was introduced to Pat Gundry. And she has stood out to me since reading that book and since taking your class mm. as someone that was boldly speaking out for women. She looked around at the evangelical church in a time when not very many were talking about the role of women in ministry. Uh, she looked around and she said, hey, women are treated as though they are second-class citizens. That was her word that she used in her book. Women are treated as though they are second-class citizens. And she wrote this incredible book, which I have read, and um, really um, painted a beautiful picture of what the role could be and should be within the Bride of Christ in the evangelical church. And it really created kind of an uproar. Uh, her husband, who is a professor at Moody Bible Institute was eventually asked to resign. And so yeah. Pat, Pat Gundry has been someone that has stood out to me as someone that was, was one of the first in within the evangelical movement in recent years that really began to speak out. But then I also go back to women um, in the early days uh, in the 1800s, I think of a woman by the name of Maria Woodsworth Etter who, you know, today we like to talk a lot about mega church pastors who have churches of 25,000, and that causes us to raise eyebrows. But Maria Woodsworth Etter in her day was attracting crowds of 25,000 people uh, through her preaching and teaching of people that just wanted to come and soak in her words of wisdom and sit at her feet. Uh, the same with Amy Simple McPherson, who is uh, from out here in Los Angeles, who started the Foursquare movement. Uh, her story is quite an interesting one, of course. But again, I, I've gone back and I've listened to some of the recordings of her preaching. And it is no wonder that so many came to hear her. She was a profound storyteller and uh, a very gifted communicator and preacher. And then in recent years, there are two women that stand out to me. Mandy Smith, who is a pastor in Ohio, who really uh, was one of the first that gave me a clear vision of a female senior pastor who wasn't also co-pastoring with her husband. Uh, Mandy pastors with a warmth and love and deep love for the church. And then also Carla Sundberg, who is now the president of Nazarene Theological Seminary, who was a missionary in Russia and a pastor uh, around the country and is just an incredible voice for women. And so I could go on with uh, women that have been influences for me and have made an impact, but there's just a few examples right there. 
Well, very good. And uh, I've heard you mention these. I, I think that story of Pat Gundry is really pretty amazing because I yes. remember I remember when it happened. And I remember being shocked, I guess, uh, maybe not so surprised, but shocked that Bob Gundry, not Bob Gundry, Stan Gundry lost his job at Moody. And uh, because of what his wife wrote, and he refused to back down from what his wife wrote. And then Stan became a huge influence at Zondervan Publishing. Uh, right. So Stan has been the director, basically, of Zondervan Academic and Theological Publishing uh, for 30 years. And he is a noble leader, and he does a very good job, and he works behind the scenes. But that guy knows his stuff, and he has written some very important little pieces uh, on this topic. He knows this story better than probably anyone else in the United States. So I'm glad to hear of Pat's influence on your life. And it, it is a part of the story because the, the women who were early in this movement suffered the most. Uh, they had to bear, they had to bear the opprobrium of many leaders. Uh, they've, they've suffered as much from women as they have from men who have criticized them. Um, so, uh, Pat, Pat is a noble, is a noble leader in this. And I'm glad now I know you have a new book coming out and it's got a beautiful cover and I'm going to be writing the forward to it um, called emboldened uh, with inner varsity. Uh, and in it, you tell us, you tell people a little bit about your call to ministry in light of what you've just said. Uh, we'd like to move on to how this became personal with you when you realized uh, that you were called to ministry and what what you what you thought you had to do to get ready for those kinds of positions. Yeah, I was called into ministry early on and never really looked back after that moment. I was in Mexico on a mission trip with about 27 other teenagers, and we were doing a Bible study on becoming fishers of men. And the pastor, Bill Bear, at the time, he stopped the Bible study and he said, you know, I just feel like the spirit is saying that there's someone here that is being called into wow. full-time ministry. And he asked us to all bow our heads and close our eyes. And he said, if that's you, stand up. And I kind of peeked my eye open, <laughs> and looked around the room, was wondering, well, I wonder who, it's, who it is. I wonder who's going to stand up. And at the same time, my heart was pounding and my palms were sweating and just heard this holy whisper. It wasn't an audible voice, but just this whisper, it's you, Terabeth. And so I stood up and just a wave of emotions came over me. And that was also a moment where I just really surrendered my entire future to the Lord, uh, to whatever it would be that he would have for me. And my friends surrounded me, they laid hands on me and they prayed for me. And I just remember uh, weeping for hours because I had no idea. I didn't really have a clear vision of what it looked like for a woman in ministry. All the role models that I had at that time mm -hmm. were men. And it was also a confusing journey for me because as I was trying to discover my call, this was before I made it to the Church of the Nazarene, I, I had heard many different messages. Uh, some tell me that I could be in ministry, I just couldn't be a pastor. Uh, some tell me that I could be a missionary. Uh, some tell me that I could be a youth pastor, but not, not a senior pastor. So I didn't really know. I just knew that I wanted to preach. There was just a burning desire. I remember saying to my friends, I just want to stand on a roof and tell the whole world about Jesus. And I even remember just this weird thing, um, driving down the road with some girlfriends and we were listening to My Redeemer Lives. And we got out of the car and we were worshiping. And I pulled out my Bible and started preaching to the cornfields because I just wanted to preach. 
And <laughs> so I ended up enrolling in Olivet Nazarene University, which was an incredibly affirming place. And there were professors there, Nazarene professors that helped me wrestle uh, with what that looked like. And so by the time I graduated, it really didn't dawn on me that uh, there would be trouble, that, there, that it would be difficult. And I went um, as an associate pastor in my first church in upstate New York, an incredibly affirming place. Again, it didn't really dawn on me that I would have trouble. And when we moved back to the Midwest, that's when I started to wake up to this reality that uh, women are, in fact, being sidelined in churches. And I, I went through a very difficult and painful season of, of reaching out to churches and looking for a role and receiving a lot of silence from denominational leaders. So I'm wondering, um, this, this is a little bit off script, but you're good at this uh, because you're Wesleyan. And that is, <laughs> and that is you know, you've, you've experienced in ministry, um, even at Christ Church Oakbrook um, and uh, where, where you've been in different churches, some opposition to women. What, what are the sorts of experiences that you think women who know they're called will encounter almost always if they go into ministry? In other words, you believe you're called, other people believe you're called, the church thinks you're called, or at least some church does, and then you experience obstacles in the way. What are, what are, the, what are the typical ones you experience? Yes, yeah, so there's there's so many different uh, levels of opposition that women are going to experience in ministry. Sometimes it's uh, women are always able to put their finger on it. They walk away from a conversation and think there was something weird about that. And sometimes it's just really blatant. Uh, for me, I've had anything from uh, I recall one time preaching a sermon. I've written about this story before. I recall preaching a sermon and halfway through preaching, a man walked up the aisle with, with a letter in his hands. He sat down and waited for me to finish. And uh, when I finished, he uh, handed me the, the piece of paper and it was written in red pen. And it was full of scriptures and reasons why he believed that women could not and should not be preaching. And he um, really got quite aggressive with me. And, um, but again, even that story too, God did something really incredible. And we had this just awesome moment of reconciliation. And so I've had many moments like that. I, um, and often I will receive, even today, I will receive emails from people or Facebook messages from people. Um, or, you know, Twitter is a crazy place with lots of people who like to troll women in ministry. And, um, and so, of course, the online world is, is a little, little crazy. So I've had many conversations like that. And then I'll have um, conversations with people that just, um, they aren't exactly educated uh, in um, just some of the challenges that women might face. I, I once had someone tell me that, well, I believe in women in ministry, but I think it would be really hard because of the hormones get in the way and it makes you really emotional. And so, you know, we, we, we hear things like that, but then also sometimes it's just the silence that is probably the most painful is when women are looking for roles and it is just silent from churches. It is silent from denominational leaders. Um, when, when there's just not even a response. And so sometimes the silence is the most painful kind of opposition, which is what I did experience for many, many years. Tara Beth, 
speaking of silence, you know, um, there's a lot of women who feel called. I was speaking to a women's group about the importance of the church. And I sit down at my table and it is almost stone silent because every woman at the table had experienced almost entire silencing. I don't mean just silence. I mean, silencing by their pastors in their churches. That's right. So, the, so their, their idea was the church is a place I go where they silence my voice, though the Lord has called me to speak. That's right. So what, what can we do? What, what do you think we can do to help undo the silence, to provide an opportunity for women to have a voice, to use my image, to let the blue parakeets sing? Yeah, so there's, you know, it really, I think there's two different conversations. Uh, number one, if we're in a church where it is totally just in their theology that women are affirmed, that's one conversation. And then there's another conversation for churches that are affirming what to do. And I think that's the that's where my heart is burdened. For denominations, for example, like the Church of the Nazarene, who have been affirming women since its inception. In the beginning days, uh, 40% of evangelist missionaries and pastors were women. And through the years, there was just a sharp and steep decline. And that women oftentimes, as Pat Gundry says, feel as though they are second-class citizens and they're silenced and they're marginalized. And so there are a number of things that we can begin doing. Number one, teach our congregations. Uh, there are many denominations that are affirming uh, women in ministry, but those who sit in the pews after, week after week have no idea. Their imagination is what they see every Sunday, which is men on the platform. And so those who are in, in leadership can resist the all-male leadership platform and begin empowering and emboldening women to uh, the platform, even beginning with things like um, ushering and announcements and, and prayers and um, reading of scripture. And I oftentimes will, when I attend other churches, I'll look out to the congregation and I wonder how many women here are gifted to teach, preach, and lead and don't even know it because their imagination has been limited. And so those who are in leadership have an incredible opportunity to come alongside of women to boldly be willing to mentor them um, and, and help them discover their gifts and cultivate their gifts, point them to seminaries, uh, point them to, to books on how to teach and preach. And those who also have the pulpit can tell stories. Um, preachers are always looking for stories. Uh, I know that. And so they can tell stories of women who are doing incredible things, tell stories of, of uh, the Junias of the Bible, the Deborahs of the Bible, and highlight them. And it's an opportunity to teach your congregation and give them an imagination that women have been a part of the grand story of God since the very beginning. Um, if you're a denominational leader and you have the opportunity um, to help churches find pastors, intentionally seek out women, um, look for their resumes and boldly be willing to bring them before uh, the boards. And also I think that churches could also be creative. Um, you know, oftentimes one of the things that keep women is just uh, the schedule. They have families and a lot of churches don't offer maternity leaves. And so I think churches can do a better job about thinking about the bigger picture for women and their families and maternity leaves. 
And so, um, and then, and then if you're a woman and you're in ministry, uh, don't buy into the lie that there's only one seat at the table. Um, in a world of tokenism and believing that there's only one seat at the table, we fight for that one seat at the table. Instead of looking to one another and saying, we're in this together and there are many seats at the table. So how can I empower you? How can I mentor you? How can I embolden you? Very good. Very good. You know, we've got a bunch of questions coming yeah. in. And uh, Chaz is going to monitor these questions and he's going to start giving us some of these questions because the audience has been very active here. So here we yeah, go. Thank you, yes. everyone, for uh, spending the time to do that. I think we'll um, start with just one question that that, uh, that keeps coming up in di different various forms, and that has to do with um, some of the... Uh, you know, some of the, the passages that kind of seem to, you know, really make um, the women in ministry uh, objectionable and questionable for, for some people, things like 1 Timothy 2.13 um, and others where, you know, Paul seems to be referring to women being silent in the church. So, Scott, maybe this is a, a good question for you to, to parse out some of those and, and, and give some examples of, of from your from your understanding and research yeah. uh, and perspective, what Paul is is really communicating here to his church. Um, the I discussed this more at length in Blue Parakeet, and, and there I try to write about it in very accessible form. There's a lot of scholarship on this, but uh, here's one thing that I I find to be absolutely necessary for this discussion to be reasonable, and that is this: no matter what you believe about second Tim first Timothy 2:13 and the passage that is talks about silencing women I think first Corinthians 14 is at least questionable whether Paul wrote that you can look at your Bible and see the debates about it but uh, it doesn't matter because what was what is said in first Corinthians 14 is said in first Timothy 2 the point is this if Paul believes in total silence Paul is living a contradiction. If Paul believes in total silence, then the church is contradicting him in the pages of the New Testament. Let me explain that briefly. Paul in 1 Corinthians tells women that they can be prophets, and he tells and, and there are women who are praying publicly. So Paul does not believe in total silence. In the early church, there are women prophets. There are women leaders. Paul talks about Phoebe as a deacon, not a deaconess that cleans up communion cups. And he talks about Junia as an apostle. He talks about Priscilla uh, as a leader. So whatever silence means, it does not mean total silence. That is where we have to start, or Paul is a contradiction. And so I, I start there, and you know we could go on this kind of conversation for a long time. I would like to just suggest people that they read uh, Blue Parakeet, or read on some other uh, texts, uh, books uh, that discuss this, R.T. France, and I have some bibliography in that book as well. So I'd like, uh, I'd like us to turn to some of these conversations that I think are really more directed at Tara Beth.
Well, thanks for joining us for the first part of this conversation. Hopefully that was helpful. And uh, Scott and Tara Beth laying the foundation of our conversation about women leading in the church. I want to make sure that if you haven't had a chance to subscribe to the podcast, please do that on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or however it is that you get your podcast, because we'd love to have you be with us next week as we continue the this conversation with the part two of the webinar. So thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to being with you again next week as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thank you.